Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our discussion of the Evergatinos. And again, we're in the first volume. And tonight we're picking up on page 301. And we had just uh, started hypothesis number 35. And if you remember, we had been speaking about asceticism and then the uh, practice of it. And then in particular, the practice of it under obedience to a spiritual elder or a spiritual father. And uh, hypothesis 35 begins to look uh, in a deeper way at that relationship with the spiritual father, which we've already touched upon. Uh, but uh, tonight is on simplicity uh, in terms of how one listens to those uh, commands or those words of guidance from a spiritual elder and not uh, sort of overly examining or analyzing them, criticizing them or criticizing the spiritual elder himself, that once one has committed oneself to this way of life, in particular for the monk, that uh, there was always a fruit to uh, remaining faithful in that practice of obedience, even when uh, one could see a kind of negligence uh, within the spiritual father himself, that that did not undermine uh, the virtue for the person who was embracing the life of obedience. And so we want to keep this in mind as well as uh, keeping before our, our eyes the, the figure of Christ and uh, his obedience to the Father, that ultimately this is where we want to be, we want our gaze to fall. So again, we're on uh, letter B, page 301. From the life of St. Euthymius, in the Lavra of our Venerable Father Euthymius, there was a brother of Asian origin called Auxentius, who was suited to looking after the mules. He was urged by Domitian, the steward of the monastery, to undertake this duty, but kept putting it off and did not obey. However, since this duty was necessary and useful, the steward took John and Syrian, the presbyters, with him, and with two presbyters, again, asked Exentius to undertake his du this duty. Still, he failed to show obedience. And since Saturday, when it was possible for them to meet with Euthemius the Great, had now come around, the steward reported everything to the saint. Saint Euthemius then was at once, uh, at once sent for Exentius and advised him to obey and not to be inflexible and disobedient following only his own will and refusing service which was useful for the brethren. So you, you begin to see them trying to follow the, the counsel of the scriptures, uh, where one who's responsible, the steward, uh, uh, is uh, not being obeyed by Exentius. He brings others into it to try to counsel him uh, to take up his duties to serve the mo monastery. And uh, with two others there, when this fails, they decide to bring it to, to the superior himself, St. Euthemius. And even here, we see him uh, obstinate in, in his disobedience, even to the, 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 the great saint. Oxensius, however, neither obeyed the entreaties of Euthemius nor showed respect for his person. He continued to resist and to invoke different excuses in order to prove that his way was correct. And so on the one hand, he pleaded that he was a foreigner and did not know how to speak the language of the place. On the other hand, he said that he feared the machinations of the flesh and the various wiles of the evil one, lest he find me far from your supervision, overwhelming me and making me a tool of his evil. I'm also afraid, Exentius protested, of getting accustomed to responsibilities and noises and thereby of remaining alien and indifferent to the stillness and calm of my soul. This is what he said, highlighting the harm to his soul as something sufficient to make St. Euthymius change his mind. So he's obstinate. He lacks a kind of docility or teachability here from the ones who had come to him. And he begins to, to make up various excuses to, to free him from this particular responsibility. And uh, they almost have a, a, an absurd kind of sound 
to them that somehow fulfilling this obedience in terms of taking care of the mule was going to undermine his spiritual life. And so either he is being obstinate or he's already fallen under sort of the darkness uh, of the evil one where his, his thinking becomes distorted and uh, the excuses that he puts forward uh, don't even make sense from the standpoint of reason. Regarding these justifications, St. Euthymius responded to him, My son, we will beseech God that nothing may harm you, and that you may not be overcome by any of the evils you fear, by reason of the obedience that you will display. For the voice of God is that which says, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And I do not mine own will, but the will of the Father who has sent me. So it's interesting, St. Euthymius is not harsh with him, nor does he belittle the excuses that are put forward. In fact, he uh, gives them a kind of credence in saying, have no fear, we, we, will, we will be praying for you so that, that you won't fall into any of the darkness that you uh, are, are worried about, and simply allow yourself to imitate Christ, who had committed himself fully to obedience to the Heavenly Father. And so we see a kind of love and generosity there that these fathers of this monastery have towards this, this young monk. In spite of this, Oxantius persisted all the more and did not yield an inch. And so St. Euthymius spoke to him more sternly. We have advised you to do what would be beneficial for you. But if you per persist in disobedience, you will learn, as no one has hitherto, what is the fruit of disobedience. St. Euthymius had no sooner finished speaking than Oxensius immediately began to tremble. From what cause I do not know, and fell to the ground, pitiable in his misfortune. All the brothers of the Lavra who were present were moved by the sorry condition of Exentius, and they persistently implored and treated and begged St. Euthymius to help the fallen brother who was suffering bitter punishment for his disobedience. So Euthymius simply allows him to experience the consequence of his disobedience and the weight of it. And uh, even though the author can't put it into words, exactly what it looked like, he's overcome with a kind of trembling and begins to lose control of himself. And so even in his own willfulness and not uh, wanting to embrace the, the counsel, the advice of, of his superiors, uh, he's allowed to experience uh, the, the fruit, if you will, of his own disobedience. And even Euthymius is concerned about it. He says, nobody here has experienced this kind of fruit of disobedience that you're going to experience. And indeed, he's overcome, uh, not only on an emotional level, but physically, and uh, brought to dire straits, to the point that the, the uh, other monks begin to beg Euthymius to heal him. St. Euthymius showed himself eager to accept their pleas and to offer his aid to such a disobedient and insubordinate brother. Taking Oxensius by the hands, he raised him up, though he was still trembling, a tremor which had spread to every limb as punishment for his disobedience. Then the elders signed him with the sign of the cross, that most effective remedy delivering the man from his suffering and at once revealing him to be healthy again. Uh, and so he simply signs him with the sign of the cross, you know, the, the very sign of the obedient love through which we are redeemed and saved. And it is through this sign made over him that he's, he's brought to the fullness of health once again. When Exentius came to his senses and remembered his disobedience, he realized full well the evil that had assailed him and understood that it was the result of his disobedience. He received still greater reproof from his conscience and was overwhelmed by tremendous remorse. 
he immediately fell down before St. Euthymius on the one hand to ask forgiveness for what he had done, and on the other to beg him to make him secure by his prayers in the future. St. Euthymius at once forgave the brother, for how could his soul, so shortly turned to anger, not be transformed hastily into compassion, and thus safeguarded his future through his prayer? Exentius then undertook the duty of looking after the mules without delay. In this way, the chastening of the Lord, as the Holy Scripture says, opens a man's ears and returns him to his senses. He who erred by disobedience before being humbled, was after being humbled by chastening from God, showed to be eager for obedience. And so in you know, Paul's counsel uh, in the, the scripture, is it Paul or uh, do I have that confused? Where, uh, or is it our Lord himself? Where, I'm not thinking very clearly tonight, where the directions on correcting, fraternal correction are given uh, when all correction fails, uh, they're told to, to hand the individual over to the evil one, to the devil. And it sounds harsh when we first read it, but uh, I think it's similar to what we are uh, seeing here within this story, that it's clear that there's something that has taken hold of him, partly his own obstinacy, his own disobedience, but this disobedience opens him up to the action also of the evil one within him. And so the last resort is to allow him to experience the full fruit of that. And he's overcome with his trembling in every limb. And so he loses control of himself completely. And it's in this that he's brought to his senses. And, uh, and so we see a kind of mirroring of what the council is within the, the scriptures itself, that there are certain instances where a person is so entrenched uh, and so mired in that spirit of dis disobedience that they no longer become teachable. They're no longer able to receive the advice or counsel, even when it's offered in love and generosity, that the only thing left to do is allow them in freedom to take the path that they have set before themselves. And with the hope, not sort of washing one's hands of them, but with the hope that the experience of it will be such that they will be brought to their senses and then repent. And this is what we see in the experience of Oxensius. And uh, it's an important thing. I think also often in our life, we, we see this kind of thing, perhaps not uh, in this extreme form, but often we are allowed to taste something of our own obstinacy or the fruit of that and the, the negative consequences of, of the choices that we make that are contrary to love and generosity and contrary to goodness. And uh, we're allowed to experience the darkness of it. And sometimes that's the only thing that breaks through that thick shell of pride. Uh, that's the only thing that allows it to, to crumble uh, and you know, brings us to our, our senses. And I think even on an emotional or purely psychological level, that often happens to us too, that once a, a kind of psychological ball gets rolling for us, where we want something and we want something to go our particular way, and, we, and we, we, even when it goes contrary to reason and our better judgment, we can allow ourselves to be pulled along to, by it. And once it gets rolling so quickly, it's hard to step back from it. Even when we see, even when we know on a certain level that it's not, not a good thing. And uh, often we, it's only by the wreck of our life that we come to acknowledge, okay, I, I allowed myself to be pulled down this path, uh, either because of my weakness or my stubbornness. And certainly in the spiritual life, uh, we, we see this same thing happen many times. And I think that's why having uh, someone who is a spiritual elder, where we can reveal thoughts or when we can go to confession regularly and talk about the kinds of thoughts coming into our mind 
that it pulls us out of that private judgment, even just so subtly that sometimes it shines a light on the things that we are considering. And sometimes we want things so bad or we are so unhappy that we will make choices that we think will change those circumstances for, for us or give us what we think that we need. And, uh, and so it's often hard for us to lift ourselves out of that until at times, you know, things begin to fall apart or disintegrate around us. And, you know, this is repentance is one of the great blessings for us. And I think as, as human beings, one of the extraordinary gifts that even in the face of our great obstinacy, that God always offers us this path to return to him uh, if we would but take it, and as well as the grace uh, to take hold of it as well. That even after we make a fall, unlike the, the angels, uh, you know, that there is this uh, full understanding and full vision of the meaning and the consequence of their choices. And so the fall is irreparable. Whereas for us as human beings, uh, often because of our, our weakness or the power of our passions or ignorance about the facts of something that uh, we are offered this great gift of being able to turn back to God and to be restored to that relationship. And so the path for us, and this is what I've liked about the Eastern writings, is not to uh, deepen the experience of shame as it is to guide a person along a path of healing. And we, we see that even in this story, you know, that there's this great desire to aid the person, uh, to offer counsel, advice, a kind of gentleness, and the sternness only emerges when everything has been exhausted. And even there, where he's handed over, as it were, to the consequence, there is this hope that he will come to his senses. Uh, you know, there's not this harshness of, again, washing one's hands of another. And we'll see it in all the stories that come up, even about the elders who are negligent, about their responsibilities to those in their charge and how they are at times brought to great conversion and repentance through, precisely through the obedience of their disciple. Anything about this story that stands out to anyone? Any comments? Letter C from the life of St. Pacomius. And his name has come up before. If you remember, he was one of the first to write a role for those living in community in the Cenobium, so the larger communities. Uh, and so, so one of the earliest roles that we have for such uh, monastic life comes from him. The disciple of Pacomius the Great, Theodore, about whom we have spoken elsewhere, Although he was still young in years, was strong in spirit and was making great progress in the virtues, imitating his teacher in all things and being subject to him through God, as if he were subject to the Lord himself. Since the soul is goaded to forbearance by the adversities which it meets, uh, St. Pacomius frequently tested Theodore in those things which he ordered him to do. Thus, while at first he would order him to do various tasks, he would then return and, having observed his work on these tasks, which Theodore always carried out with great eagerness, compel him to take up another task, maintaining that he had not done the previous task well. Pacomius did all these things to him in order to combat in Theodore any temptation of self-satisfaction. And, you know, so we see some variance in the writings of the fathers and how they treat their disciples. And I mentioned in one of the previous groups uh, how this was true of Philip Neary as well, that understanding uh, his sons, uh, there were some that he never tested like this. 
uh, knowing their constitution and knowing their hearts. But there were others that he so tested in some way every single day of their life. And uh, one was the, the great Cardinal Baronius, uh, who is uh, certainly a great servant of God, great priest, uh, but a great historian. And one of the, the, the first to, to sort of follow the more modern uh, nature of historical study and uh, put together uh, and spent most of his life uh, putting together this history of the church. And uh, so he was, he was a brilliant man, also obedient, but it, he was also the cook, made the cook of the, of the house. And uh, Philip at one point refused to allow him to accept money that was being given to him for this work, uh, even though it was needed for the scribe, pay the scribes. And eventually Philip lets him have it, but he puts him to the test and he had been cook so long in the community that he wrote on the wall of the kitchen, Baronius perpetual cook. <laughs> so the, the poor guy, even though, you know, he was, you know, this brilliant, uh, he, and he goes on to become a cardinal and weeps bitterly when having to leave the oratory. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, despite, you know, his, his brilliance, he was able to receive these things from Philip Neri. And I think they almost become the perfect model of what we're reading here, because Philip, with this wisdom, knew what Baronius needed and tested him. But Baronius trusted and loved Philip Neri so greatly that he was able to embrace these things that were often uh, a little bit humiliating. Uh, Philip had a good way of mortifying sort of the intellect and the reason of individuals and having them do things publicly that were uh, humbling before people. And Bronius was able to embrace it, much like we see here in the Fathers. And so he's testing Theodore. But since Theodore accepted this paternal reprimand with understanding, he was not perturbed and did not dare answer back or justify himself. When telling others about his elder, he said that he was the best of craftsmen and an experienced servant of Christ. For many things that appear one way to those who lack experience are correctly seen in a different way by those who have knowledge. So I, a sinner, Theodore would continue, am obligated to mourn for myself until the Lord directs my heart to the good, and I become worthy of the obedience attained by the Holy Fathers. For without the help of the Lord, a man's work are dust and ashes, especially when he bases them on self-assurance. And so this is the beauty that we see emerge in Theodore, that despite the mortifications, uh, he does not give way to anger or direct it towards uh, Pacomius, nor does he diminish him in the eyes of others, but holds him forward as being uh, the great craftsman, one who through experience knew the ways uh, of the spiritual life. And uh, the little bit of wisdom that we receive from Theodore at the very end of the paragraph uh, re reveal something of the fruit of that formation. For without the help of the Lord, a man's work are dust and ashes, especially when he bases them on self-assurance. And so even in this spiritual life, uh, our ego can insert itself in such a way where we, we do cling to private judgment. And in the spiritual life, this is always uh, a great source of danger for us to trust, trust too much in our perception of things or too much in our understanding of things in, in regards to the ways of God or the ways of the spiritual life or what is going on in another person's life, uh, their character, their, their virtue, or what we think is their lack of virtue. And so we see the fathers doing much what we see Philip Neri do many years later, of, of testing individuals to see if that kind of private judgment was something that they would cling to, or if they would grow angry in the face of having to set aside uh, their own will 
uh, even when they've known they've done things well or completed tasks fully. So in Mark. Yeah, this is something that Mark just said. So um, it was a question of his, mm -hmm. um, more or less. He said that um, a lot of these uh, people um, are in monasteries and they have particular elders or directors that they are who are responsible for them. So um, for the rest of us who live in the real world and we may not have a spiritual director or anything like that, how does that, how do we apply that to ourselves? Um, you know, and, you know, maybe listening to what Philip Neri said is helpful, but even then still these were men that he knew well and there was a camaraderie and they kind of had a, a really common life together and here you know in this group we live all over the country and we may not even know each other and so how does that apply to us in our ordinary lives when so many don't have spiritual elders or priests who are even the least little bit familiar with the desert and the desert fathers and Eastern spirituality, you know, what are we to do? Thank you, Father, for your answer. Okay. Well, you know, I think every generation faces its own particular challenges. And even what we will read here as we move along is that there, not every spiritual elder was very good or offered good counsel or, or took that responsibility uh, that he had for his disciple seriously. In fact, often abused that responsibility. And so even here, you know, amongst the, the Desert Fathers, we see that it wasn't perfectly embraced. And in response to this, I would say that, that God provides that, uh, that what might be lacking in our life, uh, in the sense of lacking a spiritual elder or spiritual director, uh, God will provide through confession, through spiritual reading, through the study of sacred scripture, through the sacramental life, frequent communion, confession, uh, and through em embracing the, the wisdom that we're reading about now. And then fidelity, I think, to our particular vocations. You know, I think married life uh, carries with it uh, a kind of, of obedience that is enacted and required every single day of one's life. Little ways that one has to humble oneself in order to allow charity to take uh, priority. It's to set aside one's will, in, in other words, in order that charity would trump all else, or simply in taking care, for example, of, of children that there is a humbling where one's setting aside what one might do with one's time in order to take responsibility. And, you know, we had often talked about the monks seeing their daily task as taking care of a mule was for Uxensius. That ta those daily tasks are our obedience. So uh, if it's a mother taking care of her children or a husband going to his job, doing that well, entering into it fully, coming back to his family in the evening and, and engaging them with the, the love and devotion that he should, all of these things are ways where one is fulfilling that call to loving and humble obedience. And uh, there are so many opportunities, I think, throughout the course of the day uh, when it comes even to obeying the voice of our conscience, that we form it and seek to form it through all the things that are available to us through the life of the church in such a way that it speaks to us very clearly and that we seek to obey it uh, as it speaks to our, our hearts uh, in order that we might stay upon the path that leads to God. And uh, even in the simplest ways, you know, Duke has become my new, he's become my new superior. Uh, you know, just, you know, you, ha you have to get up and let him out unless you want your house to be a mess and feed him and do all these different things. Uh, or if you get sick at night, you have to get up and take care of things. And, uh, and so even in small ways, there are a multiple, multiple, multitude of opportunities for us to set aside will and private judgment to do what is loving. 
and to, to give ourselves over to others in, in our care. And there's nothing that is lacking to us. You know, I think in uh, the providence, uh, in the action of God's providence in our day-to-day -day life, if we are vigilant, if we're praying without ceasing, if we are being mindful of God, remembering of God, remembering God from moment to moment, then we are going to lack no guidance uh, that is necessary for us to hold fast to the faith. It's when we give ourselves over to the things that darken the mind and the heart and the conscience that we are led astray and we begin to do the things that we see Augustensius do. We begin to make excuses for ourselves and it's not hard to see those things. And so even bringing them to confession and saying, you know, I've been having these thoughts and thinking about doing this or that, sometimes even hearing ourselves articulate the truth of those things in an audible fashion can bring a kind of clarity to us if we're doing it in a spirit of humility. Uh, and, and so we, we've been given so much that I don't think we need to make it seem like it's an impossibility for us. I think God has given us everything and more uh, in order to live the life that he's called us to, and not least of which is his, his grace from moment to moment. And we've talked about this often in this group, and, and, uh, and I've been, I've echoed it so many times as well, you know, this sense of a lack of spiritual elders. And it's through our conversation that I've really, you know, been compelled, I think, through other people's comments to, to rethink that, not to overstate it to the sense that we lose sight of all the other things that God has provided us. We might live in a very difficult time in that regard. You know, as you said, not many immersed in the writings of the fathers are able to give deep counsel in terms of struggling with the passions, but we have all these other things that God has given us as well. And, uh, and including access to the fathers that we've, you know, other generations did not have. And, uh, and you know, the Saturday group I mentioned, you know, from the rest of the Christian world that, uh, you know, the wisdom of the Syriac writers is something that filters down to us rather late you know, in time. And uh, so we're, we really live in a blessed moment in that regard. Thank you, Father. That's a really good answer. Um, the other thing that I do have to say, which is my own qualm, because you've mentioned Isaac the Syrian, I'm interested in him, but I have difficulty and feel cautious about engaging someone who is held up as equal to um, sacred scripture. So that when I see this quote that says, if we were to lose sacred scripture, but still had Isaac the Syrian, this makes me step back several paces mm -hmm. because this you're talking about sacred scripture, which is the inspired word of God versus St. Isaac the Syrian and saying that that is equal and i always just have a hard time with that so i don't you know i don't know if you it's well, probably true. did i know, say that or did i say if we were to lose all the writings of the fathers and we had eyes uh, i maybe some maybe i've seen that other place some okay. I, from somewhere mark just said it was a quote from somewhere but it wasn't, it, something, it wasn't something you said he's okay. you know correcting that thank you honey um but uh, he's saying it's something we read somewhere or a quote that said, if you were to lose everything in the world, including sacred scripture, St. Isaac the Syrian would be enough. And oh. for me, that makes me step back and go, oh, yeah, yeah. right. And rightly so. I mean, I think it's such a powerful statement uh, that one would, uh, I wouldn't say take it with a grain of salt, but would, would be really very discriminating and wonder why would such a thing be said? And, you know, I've, I've read, you know, Isaac's work and I've read uh, some extraordinary writings about him that op really opened my, uh, my eyes to something about Isaac 
and his his character and what we what we see in him that there is something very special and unique about him among the desert fathers and the way that he lived his life but also the way that he articulated the spiritual life and you know ultimately you know it it is the monk's life that is to bear witness to to Christ and the love of Christ uh, more than his words you know he should be able to be silent and how he lives his life should bear witness to this divine love if he's living fully in Christ and been transformed by the the grace of God and has given himself over fully to the things that we've been discussing and Isaac was that kind of character now we might say it's hyperbole uh, which I see in the comment here which can be true. I mean, for the sake of emphasis, you know, in terms of Isaac's greatness among the fathers, uh, something would be overemphasized. Uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, similar things have been said about like Francis of Assisi, that among the saints, that in some ways that he embodies uh, the, the character of, of the gospel in this very powerful way or that exceeds the other saints that there was something about his you know this radical embrace of poverty his joyfulness his love uh how completely he emptied himself that speaks so deeply of christ that people have often spoken of him in similar fashions i think you know we do well to avoid uh exaggerating things and you know in my excitement here in the groups often i've overgeneralized and have had to come back and say well we we should probably nuance that a little bit and or think about it a little bit more deeply and it's often because somebody's come back to me and said you know that was you know pretty strong and uh and so yeah you know i think what we want to hold on is to uh, what was said earlier in the Evercatinos is that one, one does not lightly give oneself over to this kind of relationship, even in the context of the monastic life that is being spoken of here, that uh, one would spend a great deal of time and cautiously only embrace this life because of the damage that could be done by a spiritual elder that lacks love but also and lacks that sense of responsibility for those in his care, but also lacks that experiential knowledge. And so is going to give counsel that is destructive. And so we are warned, even within the text that we are reading now, that we aren't to be indiscriminate in our thinking or in our practice. And the stories that we're reading are of individuals who made a conscious decision to enter into the monastic life and to embrace what comes uh, for various reasons, even when in the face of a negligent elder. And so we want to keep that in mind, too, you know, that this is in a particular context. Um, but, you know, oftentimes, you know, we see, let's put it this way, you know, we see in marriage, you know, there are years, maybe even decades, where individuals you know, to be uh, obedient to love and fidelity to the other and fidelity in their fidelity to their children and care of children often deal with a, a lack of consolation, a lack of support, uh, and at times a lack uh, of love. And their obedience, their, you know, ab again, to listen to God, to conform themselves to this selfless love, they make this choice to remain in that which uh, has offered them uh, not good times, but the bad times. And, uh, you know, where the, perhaps there isn't that fidelity or an unequal fidelity within the relationship. And so, again, you know, I think we can see that you know, the obedience that we see in Christ is something that can touch every aspect of our life. And it often does mean setting aside our will when the world would say, forget it. You know, why endure this? 
why endure the poverty of this? And, uh, and so in that sense, we can lack hope in the promises of Christ uh, and walk away very easily from our, our commitments. And, you know, there are always going to be exceptions to that, certainly, you know, in the face of abuse. And, uh, but I think what's being put before us here is similar to what we've talked about with the fat in the fasting group to love fasting. I think what we're called to is to love the virtues and to seek and pursue them because we see where they take us and how they draw us more deeply into this relationship with God. And one would have to love what this virtue does to the heart and to the will and to the mind in, in such a way to, as to embrace it fully. And one would have to love Christ in this very deep way. And when, especially when we, we know the deep poverty of it within this world. Anthony writes, how many properly revered persons not exactly in communion with Catholics? I love the works of St. Gregory Narek, but if Pope Francis had not made him a doctor of the church, I would have forced myself to be cautious. I love to go wholehearted into Coptic Orthodox spirituality theology, but how cautious should we be? Right, you know, none of what we're reading uh, is telling us to set aside uh, discernment or discrimination. In fact, it's telling us we should be very discriminating and what we read, what we think, the things that we expose ourselves to, and even in the commitments that we do make. If we know that this is the nature of monasticism and this is the, this is the life that it's going to mean for us and that obedience is part of that, one should think very well about the path that they're going to enter into and whether or not they're willing to do so, especially in our day, given some of the, the, the points that have been put, put forward. One should be very discerning and discriminating in choosing you know, what community to join or, or whether one's willing to enter into what will also involve hardship. And that certainly applies to marriage. I haven't heard one married person tell me it's a breeze. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's, you know, there's the cross is ever present wherever there's this kind of commitment of love and fidelity. Okay, anything else about this section? All right, why don't we move on to letter D. From the account of the travels of St. Peter, the apostle narrated by St. Clement. When Peter, the leader of the apostles, was about to give up his life after all the brethren of Rome had assembled one day, he took me, Clement, by the hand, and standing in the middle of the church, he said, sons and brethren, listen to me. The end of my course is approaching. I appoint Clement here to be your bishop, to whom I entrust the throne of my preaching and impart the authority to bind and loose. By virtue of, his, of this authority, he will bind whatever needs to be bound and loose whatever needs to be loosed, since he knows the canons of the church well. You should listen to him then, knowing that anyone who causes grief to him who defends the truth, sins against Christ and angers God, the Father of all, for which reason he shall not live. But as for you, do not ever fail to accord to your spiritual father the honor and obedience that are due to him. If you do this, you who are the ones being shepherded will prosper, and he caring for the flock will be a true shepherd and not a hireling. For this reason, I will repeat what I said. He who causes grief regarding what pertains to God, to the shepherd and teacher, grieves the spirit of God, whose throne he occupies and whose representative he is. He who disobeys the words of the bishop despises Christ and becomes a transgressor of the law. 
And so very powerful words, and you know, certainly in regards to the role of the bishop. But also, I think it speaks to us here, and I hope we didn't read past that too quickly, about that there's a kind of mutual love there uh, that strengthens the church as a whole. You know, the, the bishop in fulfilling his task of shepherding will not be a hireling if he is honored and loved by those he shepherds. So, you know, when he is struggling to, to be faithful, that their honor and their love is going to lift him up. Their prayers on his behalf is, are going to lift him up and elevate him in his, in his work and fulfilling that great responsibility. And I think we do well uh, to listen to this. I'm glad this little paragraph or two paragraphs is in this section because there often is within us, again, this, that tendency to criticize. And that's part of what this hypothesis is about. You know, the critical spirit that often takes over our minds and our hearts and where there is a lack of love or lack of spirit of generosity that we are to have and direct towards others. And it is this love and generosity that elevates the, the church as a whole. And so it not only sanctifies us individually, but it becomes a source of strength for the church as a body. Ambrose writes, it echoes what St. Ignatius of Antioch, disciple of St. John the Apostle, says of the faithful's relationship with their bishop. Exactly. It's always a wonderful uh, text to read, Ignatius's writing. Again, you know, a, a martyr, uh, another martyr within the life of the church and uh, one who offered his, his life, you know, as an example to those that he shepherded but has, says almost exactly what's said here, but only in greater detail, in greater measure even. Any thoughts about this section? Okay. One of the elders related how St. Basil once came to a synobium after teaching all in consort, he asked the abbot, do you have a brother here who is perfectly obedient? They are all at your service and are anxious to be saved, master, replied the abbot. The saint asked again, do you have anyone who is truly obedient? The abbot brought him one monk whom St. Basil had as his servant at the meal. After they had eaten, the brother gave the saint water with which he washed himself. When he had finished washing, St. Basil said to the brother, come now, I will help you to wash. Without a word of protest, the brother let the saint pour water for him to wash with. Afterwards, the saint said to the monk, when I go into the altar of the church, remind me to ordain you a deacon. The monk obeyed this too without argument. St. Basil then ordained him a priest and took him with him into his residence on account of his obedience. It's an interesting story. I'd, I'd never heard this before. Uh, see, if I wouldn't have had to go to all those years of seminary if I just had let one of the bishops wash my hands, uh, that would have been sufficient. But uh, it's a beautiful little story because it shows that this, you know, most people would shrink back, you know, perhaps out of humility or maybe even a false humility. Uh, from such a thing of having someone like St. Basil wash uh, their hands, but without missing a beat and without calling it into question, uh, he not only washes the hands of the bishop, but then allows himself to be washed. Uh, and here, you know, our minds sort of jump back again to, to Peter and the other apostles where, you know, they're arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest and then Christ girds himself with uh, a towel and proceeds to wash their, their feet. You know, this is the kind of service that you are to offer others. And, uh, and so this monk not only offers it to St. Basil, but is willing to receive it from his hands. And it's precisely this individual and this spirit of obedience uh, that uh, makes uh, Basil want then to or ordain him 
that it's the a truly obedient soul and the obedient heart who's then going to be the greatest servant of others. He's not going to, uh, you know, take up that position in order that others might, you know, be taking care of him, but that he might be taking care of him and sort of imitating Basil in the action itself, who washes, washes him after the meal. And so there are some parallels here that I, I think are interesting for us to reflect upon. This is precisely what Christ had to show them you know, about what it means to be a follower of his, what it means to be a true apostle. I've come to serve, not to be served. Number two, concerning Abba Siloan, it was said that he had a disciple named Mark who was distinguished for his great obedience. His work consisted of calligraphy and the copying of books. Abba Siloan loved this disciple for his obedience. He also had 11 other disciples who were vexed that he loved Mark more than them. They therefore brought their grievance to the elders. One day the elders visited Abba Siloan and chided him for his attitude towards his disciples. Instead of replying to them, Abba Siloan took them with him and passed the brothers' cells one by one. He knocked on the door of each, saying, Brother so-and-so, come, I need you. But none of them heeded him immediately. When he came to Mark's cell, he knocked and said to him what he had to the others, Mark. As soon as the disciple heard his voice, he bounded out of his cell, after sending him off to do some duty, Abbasilowan then said to the elders, where are the other brothers' fathers? He entered Mark's cell and observed his handwritten manuscript. He noticed that Mark had just begun to add something to it, but as soon as, he, as his Abba called, had not made a move with his hand to complete what he was writing. He then brought the handiwork and showed it to the elders. As soon as they saw it, they said to him, truly you are right to love him, Abba. He, we, and we love him also because God loves him for his obedience. All, all these stories begin to sound very reminiscent of, of scriptures uh, in so many ways that uh, and we see what that they are, these elders are deeply steeped in the scriptures because he sees in this example uh, something that we see in the gospel. You know, Christ often being criticized for his actions or the things that he says. And similarly, this elder is chided by all the others by holding up this one monk as being loved and revered and in particular for his obedience. And, but the image is really a powerful one. You know, as soon as he hears his name uh, called, uh, he jumps uh, as if it is the Lord calling him. And he jumps so quickly that he doesn't finish writing a, you know, a letter, you know, of the manuscript that he was working on which is something, you know, typically if we think about it, if we were doing such detailed work, there's a part of us that would want to, you know, finish at least this one sentence or this one word uh, so that it wouldn't seem, you know, uh, undone or done poorly. And that is all secondary to this young disciple. And again, you know, this is where we begin to see that obedience is not this kind of slavishness, but it's based upon relationship, a relationship of love. And this is, again, where we have to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ. And my food is to do the will of my father. And there's a swiftness with which he engages in that task uh, once he sets upon it. And we see that again in this image of this young uh, monk Mark, that in this small way, he acts with a love, 
you know, that makes him jump at the voice, knows he knows the voice of his shepherd, and he leaps immediately to respond to it. For my dog, it's the door of a food cabinet. He loves that more than he loves me. <laughs> as soon as he hears anything open, I've peeled an orange once and he comes running around the corner. I was like, how's that possible? <laughs> you're, you're so obedient to your stomach that <laughs> it makes you jump immediately. So the image of obedience is coming forward. And this is what I would hope, you know, as we read through it, is again, something that's not disconnected from this greater reality of not only love for one's elder and the elder's love for the disciple, but ultimately this greater love for Christ, our desire to conform ourselves to him, to imitate him, and to become like him in every way, to be driven by that same love, that same spirit of love that would make us act in such a way, even in the face of hardship. And one of the things that people quote most about Christ, you know, from Paul, you know, you know, even though he was equal with God, you know, did not count that as something to be grasped at, but humbled himself and became obedient, even unto death, death on a cross. Makes himself a slave, a servant of all. And again, you know, the, the writings of the monk make, make this come to life again for us. You know, some of the things that we begin to take for granted in listening to the scriptures, I think we see embodied. And this is what we're supposed to do. I think when people see our lives, uh, you know, we are to be living the living gospel for others, the gospel incarnate, uh, that they should see something special in the way that we love and serve others. Any comments or questions on this hypothesis? Very good. Well, we'll uh, stop there for the evening. I just want to put forward a question that uh, uh, last night we had a sort of an interesting experience. For the week, two weeks ago, we had our come and see for the students, and fifty students came to the event, and it was a great thing. You know, it was and but uh, we had a a group last night for them, the divine liturgy, and another meal. And we're going to have a group. And, uh, but we had to switch the date because their spring break is coming, coming up. And I don't know what the cause of this was, if it's because they're preparing for exams or papers before uh, they go home for the spring break. But no one showed up. And uh, it was a little disheartening, uh, but uh, there were other reasons. I think it proved to be providential. You know, there were some other people there that I got to talk to uh, that I hadn't seen in years. And, uh, but what the reason I bring this forward is that I have this talk on repentance as a continual effort through one's life, uh, as not being episodic. And we've touched upon this uh, in groups before, uh, but I have a beautiful uh, little reflection uh, for us to go to, go through, and we could attach it to the, the mailing as a PDF and do it as a group, uh, a Zoom group, uh, just sort of as an extra one night kind of thing for, for Lent. And so let me know if that would be of interest. And uh, we did this last one on a Saturday evening uh, just we'll, we'll, you know, take an hour and do it uh, here before the end of Lent. And so let me know if, if you have a particular interest in a little added supplement. If not, that's fine too. So, okay. So why don't we close there? Uh, Father, is that an in-person invitation? I'm sorry. Uh, that, would you be would you be doing something like that uh, via Zoom or via, or via Zoom? That's what I meant. Oh, that, man. Uh, for anyone who participates in the Zoom groups, that this would be something that we could do uh, for the whole group, not just for oh. those in Pittsburgh. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm all for it. Uh, that's a great idea. I will okay. be there for sure. Great. We would be, we would be interested. Okay. Um, but we just make sure it's not on someone's birthday. Okay. And when is that? <laughs> that's pretty broad. <laughs> you mean like anybody's in, in the group, not, not on anybody's in birthday? My family. <laughs> okay. I'm being totally selfish here. Okay. All right. Well, you give me the date at some point and I'll try to avoid it. <laughs> well, it's April. Goodness 15th. sake, you guys are so demanding. Don't have it on my birthday or anybody's birthday. Okay. Well, we close with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks to God.